Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance racers from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures, hear fantastic stories of their journeys, and through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. The Bike Pack Adventures Podcast is proudly supported by Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Tailfin Bikepacking Equipment, Montan Sports Canada, Race Day Fuel, and Brockton Cyclery. Their continued support allows me to focus my efforts on providing you amazing content. Now let's get rolling. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. It's uh February now. Well, we're kind of getting well into it, about a third of the way through, I think. Uh, Valentine's Day is coming up soon, and I have been so busy with my wife's car. Um, not mostly fixing it, mostly just waiting for parts because I'm ordering from like Germany and whatnot in the US because it's way cheaper than the Canadian parts. Anyways, that's what happens when you own a German luxury vehicle, I guess, and can't afford to fix it. <laughs> Anyways, it is life. Um, yeah, lots of expensive parts. But on that same note, because I'm doing all this work, my wife did give me permission to build a podcast studio in the garage because um, I have a double car garage at the off the house. That's uh, where I do a lot of my bike stuff. And she said, why don't you build yourself a podcast studio so you have a proper space instead of, you know, right now, every time I turn on the video for an interview with somebody and it's just a whole bunch of Pampers boxes on the shelves behind me that are full of baby clothes that were donated to us and not exactly a well-crafted podcasting room. It's also the place where I have to turn off the furnace and stuff so it doesn't come on in the middle of the podcast recording and make a ton of noise. And then I kind of tend to forget to turn it back on and the house gets real cold and stuff. So yeah, super excited to get this podcast room built. It's a eight foot by eight foot eight feet by eight feet uh it's cube i should say more or less and um yeah just yesterday my dad and i drywalled it and mudded it so the first uh, first coat of mud is on there i didn't have time to do more today but i'm hoping to get a couple more coats on through it this week and get it sanded which is messy and awful and then get it primed and painted and and then it'll be starting to starting to look a lot more like a podcasting, uh, well, look like a lot more like a finished room. And I'll be super stoked to start uh, recording some podcasts in there. And I got to, of course, I got to get furniture and lighting and all these fun things as well. But hey, it's going to be fun. It's going to be nice. It's going to be my own quiet space just for doing that. So I'm pretty stoked. Uh, what else? Trying to ride bikes more. I did manage to commute, commute the other day, which was awesome. It was so nice out. I had a doctor's appointment in the morning at like uh, just before 8 a.m. So I didn't actually get home. And by the time I got home, it would have been too late to get to work. So I had the morning off and I decided to ride my bike in and ride home. And oh, man, it was amazing. It was so good to be back on the bike. And, you know, I'm just thinking it's quite far to commute from home. I can't do it on a fat bike. It's uh, 25 kilometers. That would take forever. Um 
and especially if the roads have any slush and stuff. Um, I could do it from the halfway mark. I just didn't get around to it much this winter. Kind of weather was kind of shitty all the time. And um, just dealing with so much stuff at home with cars and, <clears throat> excuse me, cars and all that stuff that I just didn't really have the energy to jump on my bike and ride to work on top of that. Um, so I guess, you know, I could have done better, but we'll see. We'll see what happens uh, moving forward. Um, car should be done this week once the last couple parts come in and uh have it rocking and rolling and hopefully not broken anymore out of my garage all that fun stuff yeah also i because my garage is so busy the other day i knocked over my fat bike and it hit my wife's car with the handlebars of course and the bar end cap scratched put a big scratch in her car so now i have to deal with that and figure out how we're gonna get that touched up and stuff without spending a million bucks um might try doing it myself but that's always risky right so we'll see maybe it's just the uh just the clear coat that got scuffed off so i gotta have a closer look once uh once i have a chance to clean it up and have a look anyways we'll see i don't know uh if anybody here is listening and then the ottawa area and they're expert painters please let me know car painters that is uh i can paint the podcast room <laughs> anyways um yeah moving on what else i was at my buddy uh my wife and i went to alex garcia nguyen's place for dinner today and uh he he was a presenter at the summit last year good friend of mine and stuff and he gave me a correction to make um he said in a recent episode i mentioned that he rode the canadian shield 400 not really sure how i managed to get that wrong since we were actually both on the same ride and i was doing the 400 so i kind of turned left or went straight he was doing this 900 and he turned right and that's where we split ways so i should have known he did the 900 but in my mind i don't know why i said 400 yeah minus a couple sections of single track that he didn't really feel like doing um overall he had a great time good job buddy sorry for underselling you and uh thanks for dinner tonight um yeah if you've been enjoying the podcast and feel that you're in a position to contribute and continue to its continued growth i'd really appreciate you considering to join as a patreon supporter which you can do by going to patreon.com slash adventures uh your continued support is what helps keeps this podcast going and by becoming a patreon member you'll get early access to every episode and also to get to hear some of what we talk about off the map, essentially access to the uncut version of the episode, giving you the opportunity to hear what we talk about before and after it's recorded. So those are just a couple of little perks to uh, supporting the podcast. And on that note, I would like to thank Dan Spence for signing up to Patreon and supporting the podcast's growth. All right, on to this week's episode, the intro. In this episode of the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, I'm super excited to have had the opportunity to sit down with Kurt Refsnyder, a professional ultra endurance backcountry mountain bike legend, record holder, route developer, advocate, cycling coach, geologist, and also the co-founder and route director of Bikepacking Roots. If it's something bike related, there's a pretty good chance that Kurt has done it or is planning to do it. Some of Kurt's many cycling career highlights include, but are not limited to, winning the ITI, eight wins and her records on the Arizona Trail 300, two wins slash records on the Arizona Trail 750, winning the Colorado Trail race, winning the Tour Divide, and finishing it three times, setting the FKT on the Cocopelli Trail twice, and setting the yet-to-be-beaten FKT on the Grand Loop. So with countless other adventures and races to his name, Kurt has become the first person to complete the Continental Divide Trail southbound 
and has recently finished writing a guidebook with all the important information you might want to know if you decide to take on the daunting Iditarod Trail. In today's episode, Kurt and I take a deep dive into touring this legendary route, going beyond just the gear that might be important to have, but also the preparation, logistics, and mindset that you might need to account for. I hope you enjoy the episode and keep on pedaling. Before getting rolling into this episode, I'd like to thank one of our key sponsors. Panorama Cycles is dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Panorama Cycles has some exciting things going on this year. The recently released Torngat Tie is the first titanium fat bike to offer two crankset spindle length setups to suit all types of riding. A versatile model, both lightweight and durable, that can be used for a wide range of adventures, making it the perfect bike for both trail riding and expeditions during summer and winter. The Torngat Tie is ready to tackle any train without compromise. For the 2023-24 winter season, Panorama Cycles is offering the Try Before You Buy program, allowing you to try out the Chick Chocks Carbon Fiber Fat Bike before buying. There is no other program like this. Check out PanoramaCycles.com for details. Lastly, don't forget to use the promo code BPA10 on any new bike purchase to save 10% at checkout. Now back to the show. Kurt, Russ Snyder, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Uh, why don't we just start with you kind of telling us who you are, I guess the Coles Notes version, because it's, uh, it's pretty extensive. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's that's a tough one to start with. How do, how do you distill down who you are as, as a person? <laughs> um, I mean, from a professional standpoint, I was a um, geology professor for Sorry. quite a few years and was in, in academia, grad school, and then, then teaching for, geez... 15 years, something like that, and have been riding and racing bikes and super enthusiastic about them since I was in like sixth grade, seventh okay. grade, something like that's when I started racing and uh, did all sorts of mountain bike racing, road racing in high school, did we had a, a velodrome right near where I grew up. So oh, that's so uh, cool. Spent a bunch of time yeah. on that, worked in a bike shop, which was, I mean, that helped steer me so much in, in the direction that I've, I've been heading ever since. Uh, and then was a competitive Nordic skier because I grew up in Minnesota. Went to college and then grad school and kept racing mostly bikes at that point and spent a while on the like elite cyclocross circuit mm. in the US trying to see just how strong I could be. And then got tired of going around little tiny circles and got yeah, yeah. enamored by this one really big loop in Western Colorado, Eastern Utah. Um, and Is that the Grand Loop? First, Is that the one? Yeah, the Grand yeah. Loop. So I did yeah. my first ultra back in 2008, I guess. And that was how I got into bikepacking, was trying to get ready for that that one particular event. Oh, that's so cool. And then have been bikepacking, whether it's you know big adventures or races uh, or little adventures, overnighters, like the whole, <laughs> whole gamut of it. And uh, taking other folks bikepacking for... Geez, 15, 17 years now, something like that. That's um, very cool. So it's definitely become quite a passion. And I, I left the teaching job a few years ago and have been focused on the Bikepack Roots nonprofit uh, and coaching and my own racing and, and adventures uh, since then. So trying to balance all, all, all of those things. That's pretty wild. And you were, you were like, the, is it a founder or were there a couple founders to the Bikepacking Roots project? Like. Uh, there were the two of us, me, two, myself yes. and Kate Boyle, who is my teammate on, we, we run a, a small pro kind of backcountry mountain bike team now called the Industry 9 Pivot Pro Backcountry Team. Oh, okay. and so that's also the, the two of us. So oh, those are all cool. TV, right? Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I imagine then you probably had some of the same feelings like when you're teaching college or university and then kids like, what do you mean? You, you spend all your time biking and racing and <laughs> stuff and, and 
people must be like, how are you a professor if you're doing all these things? Like, how does that, how does that mesh? Right? Yeah. And it was the same as a grad student that, you know, there were, there was, it was a big challenge to fit in how much I was riding and training to get ready for, I mean, at that point, you know, things like tour divide, um, which I raced a a few, few different years back then. Unfortunately I had an advisor that was super supportive of it. And he was just like, yeah, you get, get your work done. If you disappear for three weeks, that's fine. Just make sure you're doing what you need to be doing. That is um, awesome. I, I, yeah. I so want to do the tour divide, but at the same time, I'm a teacher and it's like June 10th, that, that second weekend of, so second week of June, I'm still teaching for three weeks. Yeah. It's impossible. Yep. If you know, if I was yep. university teacher, it's different. They're done in like end of April and they have a lot mm-hmm. more time off and yep. makes it a little um, bit easier. Definitely. But as a teacher, it's almost impossible. I mean, it, they, there's such a shortage of teachers. They won't even give unpaid leave, you know? Jeez. So, so you don't even have that. Like you could get unpaid if you had like, you know, some psychological thing going on. Maybe if I had talked to a psychiatrist and was like, <laughs> he needs to go do this race because his mindset will be better and he'll be a better teacher for it. Uh, it could be, the, that could be the cue. <laughs> Good argument to try making. So uh, fortunately there's all sorts of other things out there that are much shorter and uh, more flexible yeah. than, than time. And we're we're going to bounce around a little because I wanted to ask you, and since you kind of mentioned the, the university and stuff, like you created a bikepacking geology course and you got to tell me about it before we start talking all about the <laughs> idea around because that sounds epic. Yeah, and geology through bikepacking. Kind of blew and my mind when I saw a, it. <laughs> that was a course I was just reflecting on a bunch the other day because one of the routes that we rode was the White Rim Road in Canyonlands National Park in, in Utah. And I just rode that a few days ago for the first time in quite a while. Uh, I think the last time was with, with students in that. So that was another, another endeavor, um, with Kate Boyle that she was, she and I met teaching at Prescott college. And that was a course that we put together. I had the Uh. idea, um, for it and could teach the geology side of it. And, you know, I know how to bike pack, but I had no idea of the kind of adventure education side of things or group management or risk management or any of that. And so, um, she came on board to really help fill out that side of the course and develop a a curriculum around that side of things, uh, which was fantastic. And so we taught that every other year for three years and it was like a month long course. We had the students, you know, the whole time for it. And so we'd go on a, a road trip for most of that and did, I think either four or five different, uh, mostly three to four day trips Okay, on the Colorado plateau region. Yeah, and yeah. we're really kind of going through the whole geologic history of that, that region, uh, with the, the first trips being the oldest part of the story and the last trip being the, the newest part of the story. So they got to see and just literally ride through that, that geologic history. And like my vision of like that Western part of the U S and obviously U S has so much really cool stuff to ride, but it's like, in my mind, it's always that those rock fissures, like that you fissures that you see like in, in Arizona and stuff in mm-hmm. Utah, right? So that's like yep. that's my mind. It's like you're just gonna be epic riding, and it's like everybody it, hauls the stop. And was, you're like, check this out, guys. It was and, so good. I mean, we got like the volcanoes of, of northern Arizona, Grand Canyon, um, Canyonlands National Park, and that that canyon country up there, Crested Butte, and the the mountains of of the Southern Rockies uh, in that that zone of Colorado. So yeah, it was. I mean, we can't beat the the places we were able to take the students. Yeah, yeah, that's really wild. And uh, and then jumping back in time, I know you said you started racing at like twelve years old or something. Is that what you said? Yeah, I think thirteen. Twelve, thirteen. I think thirteen. Yeah. And you did your first. Was that doing the century, or is that like was it a race, or was it uh? Uh, started. Yeah, my first drill like endurance challenge was just riding a century when I was thirteen. That's so I cool. That seemed like a cool idea. And didn't know anything about it. Um, and then I think it was the next summer I started doing some mountain bike races. 
uh, in Minnesota. And that was, that was how I got, got started with that. It's like, that it all goes direction. so well until you get a car license, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. If, then did I you was ever... able to go to more races. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you were lucky. You were, you were, you were was, smart yeah, that I way. Was, I think yeah. I became a, a binge drinker partier and that was a, kind of the end of it for a while, you know? Until... I was just too, too enamored by bikes. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> you lived great. in the right, well, I mean, everywhere in North America is probably the right place to live for biking, but, uh. Yeah, I think that was. What, where do you live exactly? Anyways, are you in Montana? I live in, Pre- in Prescott, Arizona. Arizona, okay. Yeah. yeah, so kind of north central Arizona. Um, it's currently snowing here, actually. I live at like 50, 5,700 feet, 5,800 feet okay. above sea level. Yeah, yeah. So above above the desert in the oh, pines. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's a good good spot to be. Let's come there one day. Uh, yeah, we have uh, the shittiest winter ever here. Like, it's just awful, awful. Like, it's just ice crust, chunky not great riding like finally it's kind of smoothed out a bit but it's Ugh. it's just been a bad winter yeah. yeah so um all right let me let me pop over all my notes i have a shit ton of notes um <laughs> <laughs> so i thought maybe we could kind of break it up into like prep for the iditarod um mm-hmm. packing or sorry that's part of the prep um and then talk about the route and then like major takeaways logistics stuff you know because i think there's so much to dive into this and i know you you have recently put together a uh, a guide, right, for people mm-hmm. to use yeah. as uh, this, and this will be something that's available on your website, I presume. Yep. Uh, ultim- yep. Eventually. Yep. It's pretty much all there now. Yeah. Yeah. So. Cool. So preparing. I mean, what kind of training did you? I mean, you're, obviously you bike for a living, so it kind of helps there, right? You're you're mm-hmm. kind of it always at some kind of peak <laughs> or close to level of training, um, but. For the general person, I mean, obviously, to go ride a Ditterod, you have to be an experienced cyclist, and you've got to have an invitation. Um, so you've probably done pre-training, but like, what kind of stuff should you consider before you get up there? Yeah, so, so I mean, a, a little background on the trail. There's the trail itself is what it's like 950 miles uh, from outside of Anchorage across uh, the whole interior of Alaska to Nome on the the west coast on the Bering Sea coast, and it's basically a very short-lived trail every winter there's it's there for like three or four weeks okay. something like that oh it's that short um, yeah 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 it's a pretty short window it i mean it depends on weather but it really there's a snowmobile race that uses it mm-hmm. and then two weeks later there's the sled dog race and so the snowmobile trail there's snowmobile traffic kind of packs it in but then the sled dogs use some different sections some years and so the sled dog race has its own team of usually like four or five trail breakers okay um snow machines that are you know, half a day or a day ahead of the lead racers and they go through and they break trail. And so you've got great trail after they go through. And as the sled dog teams go through and there's traffic associated with the race on the trail. And after the, all the sled dog teams go through and the race traffic disappears down the trail, there might not really be any more traffic on it that year. Or there's certain sections between native villages that will have some traffic. um, But there are some long remote stretches that the next storm that comes in may blow the trail shut. And that might be it. And so it's a really narrow window from kind of, uh, I don't know, mid-February to mid-March that that the trail is actually passable for bikes or skiers or walkers. Or um, we ran into a number of groups of, of snow machiners that came from... I mean, there was one group from from Russia that came over to snowmobile the whole length of the trail. Oh, shit. Oh, okay. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it definitely, it, it draws people, not a yeah, ton, yeah. but it draws people from all over doing different things. And so there's the, uh, the Iditarod Trail Invitational race, the human-powered race mm-hmm. on it, also that starts right before the sled dog race does. And so that's the one you need a uh, qualifier or several qualifiers to be part of that. 
and they have race distances that are like the first 300 miles or the whole trail. You did 350, um, right? The first. So yeah, yeah. so I did the, the 350 the first year and that was what got me up onto the trail and super fun experience doing the race. It was, we had some pretty demanding conditions, both like slow trail yeah. and really cold temperatures, like down around minus 50 the last night we were out there. So super cold, really challenging. I loved it. Like it was a really daunting experience, but I really enjoyed myself um, in it. And then that year, um, I had made plans with Nicholas Carmen, a friend out of out of Anchorage, and to ride the rest of the trail, basically beyond McGrath, where okay. the, the 350 race ends. And so I spent a few days recovering in McGrath and then continued on with him. And we made it like, I don't know what, 250 more miles maybe to the Yukon River. And then the first cases of COVID arrived in Alaska. Oh, and man, no. <laughs> then immediately the native villages were all like, um, this is concerning. We don't want any outsiders coming in because they're all like, if someone gets sick, they're literally, literally a plane flight yeah. to a clinic. Yeah. Um, and our food boxes, resupply boxes, were sitting in post offices in some of the villages. And, you know, you can't get those. You can't get to stores. Nothing like that. Yeah. And so we ended up bailing on that that trip and, and found a flight on a mail plane back to Fairbanks. Okay, um, so I was going to say, what's, what's the exfil tactic there? I guess it's try to get on any it, plane out of a nearby it, village, right? Yeah, I mean, all the villages have, have flights, yeah. um, if not daily, like every other oh, okay. day or every third day yeah, or yeah. something like that. And so it is actually pretty easy to get in and out of mm. any of those. Um, and so we just got lucky and managed to get on a, a mail plane the day that we were hoping to leave. Okay. Uh, and so that was what that was 20. And so it was kind of this big unfinished thing. I really did want to go back and see the rest of the trail at some point. And I think I was actually more intimidated at that point, having spent some time on it and knowing just how demanding it is and just how bad conditions can be. Uh, but I really did want to want to see the rest of it. And I didn't have any specific plans for when I wanted to go back living in Arizona, like winters aren't very severe here. I'm not necessarily a winter guy at all. And so it's, it's not a, so I'm not the only one. (laughs) No, definitely not. So it's like these, these winter adventures like that are definitely not something that feel, you know, just second nature to me. Like it's so out of the comfort zone. Right. So like you're, you're, you're used to all things biking and then all of a sudden this is like, a full 180. Uh, yeah, in, the in biking the, up there is the easy part, and everything else is so much harder to yeah, manage yeah. Uh, than than any other time and any, any other scenario. So I guess much. we were talking about training. <laughs> we were, yeah. And so, so, so this past winter, uh, was it this past winter? No, two. Well, not this year, but last year. Yeah. Uh, my friend Hugh Oliver, uh, a Scottish guy that I've ridden with a few times in different places, um, he reached out and said, "Hey, I'm racing the 350." Any chance you want to ride a gnome afterward? And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, I don't have a reason to say no. I got to finish I don't have plans it, right? to do that, yeah. but I really want to finish it. And he was one of those guys, like, if I had to, like, outline the characteristics of someone I wanted to go spend, like, two plus weeks riding through really harsh winter conditions with, like, he was the guy that I want to do that okay. with. Uh, and so that made it a super easy decision. So I think I sat on it for, like, a week and was like, I don't know why I'm thinking about this. I just need to say yes. Uh, so told Hugh I would, and then went up there and rode the first week alone and then met up with him um, after he was done with his race and mm. continued on. And also Nicholas Carmen ended up showing up in McGrath at the exact same time. And so the three of us rode the, the rest of the route oh, okay. together. So did you so, ride to McGrath or you kind of just hi- you got hitched a ride yep. to McGrath? Nope, I, I oh, rode there. Ride that, was, that was the part I did alone. Took, oh, okay. took a week, yeah, week yeah. to do that. 
Um, so yeah, so training, how do you get ready for a trip like that? I mean, I put in a lot of miles in the bike. Like my goal was to try to make it so that, I mean, this is kind of always my goal to be as fit as possible because the fitter you are, the less you're stressed by the physical demands of something and the right. more your mind can be focused on other things, whether it's just having fun mm. or in a case like Alaska and the Adirondack trail, you can being be focused on and, like all yeah. the self. Yes. Being yeah. safe, making good decisions, uh, eating constantly, uh, all that stuff so that you don't have to worry about those things. And it's, you know, it's when you're not as fit as maybe you should be ideally and you jump into an adventure like that that things can go south or just be mm. so hard for so much of the time because you're struggling both physically and you're struggling with everything else right. as a result um and so so my goal was just ride a lot going into it and try to you know i basically treated treated it like i was preparing for for a race uh, an, an ultra race and yeah. went up there maybe maybe the trick is to do all like low rpm super high wattage pushing you know <laughs> that, i mean that does help i did some of that yeah and my knees my knees don't like doing too much of that at yeah. a time but that is definitely one of the things that's I unique if you hit the hot, if you hit the big powder like it could just be absolute brutal for hours right like yep luckily here i can go riding in sandy washes and it feels very oh, yeah. very similar <laughs> So take a little trip to Baja I, and you'd be good to go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so what kind of bike did you choose? I mean, uh, is it a pivot or? Yep. I guess yeah, I pivot. guessed it was because you're, that's the part of yep, the, the pivot. Less fat is, is a really, it's a really awesome fat bike um, because you can run five inch wide tires. So basically the widest 26 tires you can find. 26 by five then? Or? Yep. 26 yep. by five. And the bottom bracket stance on it or the pedal stance is the width of most bikes that would run a 26 by four inch tire. Oh, okay. And so your yeah. feet aren't sitting, you know, way out far apart. They're just far apart. Cause it's a little uh, bit hard on the knees too. Like I found that my first year of fat mm -hmm. biking, I was like, oh man, this is a lot on the inside of my knees. Cause all of a sudden everything's yes. just, you're a little bit more like saddle, horse saddle, you know, like, uh, yep. like, yep. Horse and then when you put on really big boots, then that mm -hmm. pushes things up out even farther. So yeah. So that was the bike I was on. It was the same one I'd ridden up there a few years before. Um, and done. And is it a carbon or steel or? Mm -hmm. Yep. Carbon, carbon, carbon frame and fork. I was going to ask, like, how does yep. carbon handle up there in the really cold temperatures? But I guess it's, I mean, they're, they must be all tested to that. Right. So it's probably, I've no never way. heard. Well, I don't know of any companies that test much of anything in the bike industry down below like minus 20 right. <laughs> Fahrenheit. Yeah, fair so, uh, I mean, you, you end up with weird issues with, you know, bearings or this winter. I, I, and, and actually when I was up in Alaska, the first time dealt with some issues with the bearing seals that things contract in different ways at those temperatures. Right, yeah, and yeah. so even if you replace the, the grease with Arctic grade grease, the seals themselves can start to really bind mm -hmm. up. And then suddenly your wheels don't turn well, or your cranks don't turn well right. or something like that. So there's always weird, unexpected things that happen. And I'm guessing if you the, follow some of the discussion boards, people will be talking about that and they'll be saying, hey, like this brand of bearings have shown to be really good or like, you know, where things, who knows? So, some of it, yes, and others were just like, guessing like why yeah. doesn't this one work but that one works what is this or everybody's like, a professional on a discussion board and you never know what's <laughs> legit or what's everyone not, knows. Right? Yeah. yeah oh it's totally true <laughs> yeah and also you know again living down here i can't test any of that stuff out i have no way of testing mm -hmm. my gear and you know i can go up to like northern rockies or something or minnesota and hope for some cold temperatures but you're probably still not going to see anything colder than like minus 15 or minus 20 yeah. fahrenheit 
Yeah. And I and I I have seen that you have uh, arrow bars on a lot of bikes, but I'm guessing when you do the I did a rod, you probably don't put arrow bars because it's like too bike. damn cold. No. Right? Like, I hardly I honestly I hardly ever use arrow bars there. Okay. I've used them for tour divide. Yeah. A little bit for training for that. Um when I've raced Cocopelli Trail a couple times. And a few other like kind of dirt roadish ultras. I've used some. I love them. I think I just get lazy ones. and I'm just like, I'm gonna lay down. Like, <laughs> start like sending SMSs and stuff or whatever. <laughs> if maybe if I had pogies on the fat bike for for arrow, uh, arrow bar pogi would be interesting. Somebody's I've never seen develop. that. Maybe Doug Dunlop could develop one. <laughs> Do you know Doug Dunlop? He's done that. No, I don't. No, he's uh, he's out of Calgary and he's done the. Uh, he did the ITI as well. I think. I think oh, cool. the 1000, but maybe it was the 350 as well. I can't remember now. Um, yeah. And he talked about, I forget what pogies, but, um, you know, I have the 45 North ones and they're great, but they're not really lined inside super, you know, for like, mm-hmm. I think that extreme cold. Um, yeah. There what, aren't many options that are good for that. Cold. Is it the, which ones are the good ones? Was it the Revelate design that has the ones uh, that yeah, are lined? The Revelate designs expedition pogies. That's the ones that people tend to use, yeah. Yeah, they're like the outside's insulated with some synthetic insulation, and then they have these thick fleece removable liners uh, that you can slide in. And so this this race I did up in Idaho a few weeks ago it was minus, almost minus forty overnight, and I was riding in just like liner gloves in in the pokies. Oh and no way! Hands were that, completely that warm, completely huh? fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I think it was a guy from uh, he lives in northern Quebec that he told me about those because I, I didn't know about them, and uh, he did this route called the Route Blanche in the eastern Quebec. Oh, yeah. So it's a 400, 500 kilometer ice road in the winter. So it's only yeah. once the ponds and rivers and creeks have frozen where they groom this. And all of a sudden, you know, these First Nations and little other villages have access to the real world without flying yep. or boating. Right. So, yeah. Um, and I was going to do it last winter, but then it wasn't frozen. It was like it was too much snow last year. It was one of those years where everything's around <laughs> zero and it never freezes. Oh, like yeah. you didn't get a good freeze, so there would have been like a foot or a meter of water. You probably would have just drowned. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Cool. So yeah, I was. I did. I was trying to remember what pogies those were, and uh, so thanks. Yeah, the uh, yeah expedition definitely would hi- highly recommend those. And on something like this, are you clipped in or are you using flats? Yeah, I've uh, man, I've only run clipless for like twenty years okay, on bikes, to me. and. Yeah. But it's definitely not the only way to go. Like I, I do struggle with my my toes keeping them warm enough in the boots I run. Like I've got some of the the warmest forty five North boots, and then mm-hmm. run mountaineering um, boot liners in them, and those are a little bit warmer than. Oh the yeah, stock those are liners. those the closed cell foam ones. Is that like those yeah, kind of things? And, yeah, and also yeah. you don't need to worry if they do get wet because they don't absorb water into right. the yeah, into I've the heard. foam, which is fantastic. But when it gets down below like minus 15, minus 20, I definitely do struggle to keep my toes warm. Okay. And so Nicholas Carmen, who I was riding with both times up there, he has just some, you know, regular old $150 um, Baffin boots or Kodiak boots mm-hmm. or something like that and flat pedals. And he's used those, I think, on four, four and a half, his four and a half rides to know him okay. every time and never has any trouble. Yeah, I've heard of, warm. I've heard of like so. Baffin boots with those mountaineering, like closed cell foam liners is supposed to be really good too. Like, yeah. So it's, you know, there's no right way to do it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the expensive way is to try to use clips and, and, you know, cycling boots. Uh, yeah. but if you want to not spend that much money and don't mind being on platforms or would prefer to be on platforms, then yeah, by all means experiment with the, 
the just regular and, bathroom and boots. And probably like for me, it's comfort, and I guess for you too, it's like that that position of your feet and not sliding around. Like I, mm-hmm. it drives me nuts when I'm on flats and all of a sudden my feet are moving and I'm like ah, oh, because I'm so used yeah, to a certain and, position. And right? when- yeah, and in really soft snow and really challenging riding conditions, I actually find that being clipped in helps so much with uh, just maintaining, like keeping my body as absolutely quietly as, as possible right. on the bike, but then being able to make little, you know, like a, literally a quarter or half pedal stroke, putting out a bunch of power mm-hmm. to like straighten yourself out or something like that. Yeah. That can make such a difference. And it's that's so much easier for me to do. If yeah, I was, I was wondering if one of the, the, um, one of the things that makes no difference though with clipped in is in the big snow is you can't really do a pull up, you know, like when you're on a normal bike, cause all of a sudden you're just going to spin. Right. So it's, you're not going to yeah, get that grip. So the, that's one of the advantages where normally like you just kind of lose out. Right. Is that. Yeah. It's hard to say. Like I, th- I feel like in snow you can still have a really round pedal stroke. Okay. It's just a very slow cadence and it's almost more like you're trying to maintain constant power into the pedals through the whole oh, pedal yeah, stroke. Enough, yeah. Because if you'd let up on the power, as soon as you re-engage, that's when you might slide your tire a little bit. So in in really challenging conditions, mm. um, I do think that that's actually That's a good point. Helps. Yeah, actually, that's a, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. What else about set setup? Um, I was going to ask about lighting. I, I'm guessing dynamos and stuff are kind of a not so I mean, useful because you're probably not cruising at like 15 kilometers an hour. No, you're going, I mean, man, if you're going seven miles an hour, it feels like you're flying on that trail. Like it's a slow yeah. trail. Um, and touring up there, I guess, I mean, I, I did, days are getting longer quickly at that time of year, but there still is, I don't know, 12 hours of dark or something mm-hmm. like that. And so especially the first week when I was riding alone and trying to make some big miles in kind of slow conditions, I was riding a fair bit at night. But you don't need a ton of light in in the snow. Compa- as compared That's true. To, yeah, like, yeah. Riding single so track it's like in the a, a good light on low is going to go for totally. hours and hours. Yeah, and hours, yeah, right? exactly. So you don't need much much battery, like depth of battery. And so I was using a um, Fenix. It's a, a headlamp of theirs that I use for most of my riding these days. And yeah, I've got the B twenty six R as one of my Fenix lights. Um, that yeah. they use so many numbers God and letters. Knows. This was I don't even know H- what it means. It's H- round. HM sixty five R. If that means anything. Oh yeah. It's no, a, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's a it's designed as a trail running headlight. Okay. But I, oh, I okay. love it for cycling. Yeah, yeah. And it's got a little boa dial on it, twist dial, and so you can quickly with like even big gloves, like loosened up, pull it on over a hat. If you mm. got to throw your hood on, you can take it off and quickly adjust it yeah, without yeah. needing to pull your hands oh, that's out. That's neat. And I carried two batteries for it, and I never used the second one. Like, oh, no way. Re- okay. I recharged that one, I think, twice during that trip. And that was it. And that was still with, mm-hmm. and I probably did 20 hours a night riding the first first week and less than that the other two weeks each. But yeah, still, it's a good, a good light. Like, I, I got it recently, a, um, was it, Magic Shine, a big light, you know? Because mm-hmm. I was like, you know, mountain bike packing. Dynamos aren't super convenient. Same thing. You're often mm-hmm. going up a trail and yeah. all of a sudden the dynamo light is barely flickering. And um, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to, for the mountain bikes type, type stuff, I'm going to put on, you know, wired battery lights. Yeah. And, it's, yeah, um, that's that's my preference. And then dynamo will be on the gravel bike for that faster stuff you do, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I, I was looking at that thing because it's got like a 10,000 milliamp battery that you can use as a USB power bank as well. Um, nice. But it. Man, if you're running it on low, it could run for like a week. Like, something yeah, that, that'd be way you know? more than you yeah. need for winter winter yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, 
Um, that's good to know. Yeah, I was always kind of wondering, like, what, I mean, obviously you're not going to be on Dynamo, so how big a light do you need? But I guess yeah. because of reflection and glare, you don't need a ton of light. It's going to reflect everything anyways, right? Yep. Yep. Did you, uh, do you run a constant, like, red light because of snowmobiles or potential things? I, on the busy sections of trail, yes. And then, I mean, that was basically, like, the first two days or something like that. And then past that, like, you hear them coming behind you um, okay. if they're if they're coming from behind. And the trail is slow enough for a lot of sections that they're not moving that quickly. Okay. And then I think there were a few sections out on, on the Yukon River on sea ice that I did put it back on just for visibility. But those sections hardly saw anybody on it. Yeah, um, I saw your video so. of uh, your your story with uh, the Yukon River. It looks so epic. And I think your oh buddy was just like over a couple hundred meters over from you or whatever. Mm-hmm. I looked, the Yukon uh, is wild. Beauty. It's I mean, it's a, it's literally a mile wide. And you're on it, no matter if, you, if you're on the southern route or the northern route, whichever one it takes that year, you're on it for like two and a half days or something mm. like that. <clears throat> so you camp out there, it's super cold on the river. Oh, speaking and, of that, Rivers, I, I met a guy the other day who does uh, stand-up paddleboarding, and he's going to be going to do the race. I forget the name of the race, but it's from Whitehorse to Dawson City. It's like 500 kilometers or that something, something crazy. <laughs> and, no, it's not that far. It's not 500. Anyways, it's pretty far. He said it would take him like 80 hours nonstop like, Jeez. with one mandatory stop. On a stand-up. I was like, whoa. <laughs> That's on, insane. On huge water. The, I mean, yeah. the river's smaller up there, but it's still big. Yeah, yeah. It's wild, yeah. man. Like. So there are crazier people out there is all I'm trying to say. You know? <laughs> I was, when I was camped out on the river, you know, you're camped on the ice and I'm just thinking about how much water is flowing just a few feet underneath me. And that just would creep me out. How uh, wide that, is it up there? Like at that point, it's, it's a solid mile. Okay. Yeah. Wicked. Yeah. It's, it's huge. Uh, what about other charging stuff? I mean, I guess you're just your phone, right? And, um, trackers battery powered or yeah so i've got a little garmin uh it's one of the new um in reach two or whatever in reach messengers okay and it i mean i just had that on tracking every 20 minutes it would send a point and that i mean i could leave it on for a week and it would go down yeah. maybe 50 percent or something like that so it's got a really good battery in it and then yeah phone what else do i have camera and a gopro and so I just carried a little, I think it was like a 5,000 milliamp backup battery. Oh, okay. And that was all I had. And so that would that would be good for like a week at a time. And because you have the huts too, right? You have these places where you can stop and I guess we'll talk yeah, about Yeah, but most, most of those you can't actually recharge anything in. Oh, okay. There, there's, there's it's completely off-grid kind of thing, huh? Yep. There's one of them that had solar and that was mm. it. So really it's if you stay in a town, then you can charge stuff. And so I just, my goal is always like minimize the electronic stuff, mm -hmm. try to be really efficient with it. So I don't need to be worrying about recharging. You don't bring a laptop to watch movies at night and stuff. No, <laughs> no but I try to ignore my phone as much as possible. Um, so let's, let's jump into the packing thing. Cause I think it's also pretty critical. Cause I think it's a, it's easy to overpack, but you definitely don't want to underpack. Right. Cause yeah. uh, you're and going in some wild, wild country and you know, things could happen it's, right yep it's such a balance i mean you might get stuck in one place by bad weather or a trail that completely blows in or an injury or something like that you might be stuck there for days and so you need to be prepared mm. to to be in in your tent in those sorts of conditions or be forced to move if things don't go well and be able to move through really harsh conditions and then it's a balance between bulk like how much can you actually yeah. physically fit on your bike and like when i started i was carrying six days worth of food and in winter that's i was 
I think I had 6,000 calories a day. And so that was like 18 pounds of food right there. Right. So, and then fuel, uh, I think I started with two liters of fuel for that, that six day stretch. Um, and I could have gotten away with less than that, I think, and gotten some along the way, but yeah, so you have to like have all your gear, but then still have space for all this other, mm-hmm. other stuff that's just as important so that you can fuel yourself and fuel your stove. Yeah. What kind of sleep, like is a minus, uh, going Celsius here, minus 20 sleeping bag enough, or is it something you need like a minus I had 40. a minus 45 okay. Fahrenheit, yeah. which would be about a minus 45 C yeah, pretty close. Uh, bag. And I was very glad that I had one okay. that warm. Because it's, I mean, we had a lot of nights this past year that were down around minus 25. And it would not be, like when you get across the Alaska range into the interior, it would not be at all rare to have temperatures of like minus 40 or minus 50. And so being able to sleep comfortably in those conditions requires mm. a really warm bag and especially if you know if something goes wrong like you need that that yeah. for safety and what brand of bag is that because i'm sure there's not that many companies making minus there's 40 no there's not a ton um mine's a nemo bag oh, yeah. and they, yeah, unfortunately they, they quit making it a oh, couple years okay. ago like i got it and then i think that was the last year they made it but i love it it's been great um uh, definitely would recommend it if you can find one used it seems like there's always people selling used super warm sleeping bags because yeah. a lot of people will get them for like one or two expeditions and then oh that's right yeah and they're like all right i've i've done i've achieved what i wanted to and uh i, I don't need it, to do it that was again. cold and it sucked <laughs> and uh <laughs> yeah yep so that i had uh two foam pads um i've used both foam and like one foam and one inflatable pad in the winter and yep. i just do do not feel like dealing with inflatable pads okay. in the cold so you use just, just just foam closed cell foam ones with the reflective layer thingy like that kind mm-hmm. of thing yep something like that yeah yep they insulate better than most air pads and then just in if it's you know minus 25 or minus 40 the last thing you want to be doing is like anything extra with your hands to break camp or set up camp yeah so any way you can make any of that that's oh, that's a good more point yeah, to do. even just trying to like connect the inflatable bag onto your sleep and your air mattress because totally. you're not going to want to blow for that long and you're going to fill it with yeah or i had one that the valve the, the little air valve cover was one that had to snap into place right and when it got that cold it was next to impossible to get it to actually mm. fit into place because it wouldn't flex at all yeah yeah so again certain certain things that you never expect to not work normally suddenly in the cold can interesting yeah very uncooperatively yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I I didn't even think of that. So I was gonna say, hey, how many R value was your air mattress? But no. <laughs> um, where do you pack the the mats? You know, because they take a lot of space. So they do. That's probably so the biggest pain the, with them, right? The general setup on my bike is to try to keep the handlebars and the front end as light as possible, right. because that the more weight you have up there, the more that impacts handling, and in really challenging snow conditions, mm-hmm. the more weight there is there just the more squirmy your bike is and the harder it is to and is that the same the if you got weight lower like in um cargo cages type things or yeah whatever? it doesn't really matter it's just still, where it is relative there. to the steering axis yeah. uh so uh i'd have what was my setup i had one one pad and my tent on the handlebars and that okay. was it and then and that keeps it down to like one and a half kilos or something yeah, yeah. yep not a lot and then Few the pounds. I had a big, big bag on the back rack that had a, like all my clothing and sleeping bag and then strapped onto the side of that was the other, the other foam pad. Oh, okay. 
And then panniers to hold whatever you needed back yep. there. They were mostly filled with food and cooking stuff and yeah. a little like a little bit of clothing that I want to keep really handy for during the day okay. would, would get shoved in those. So how much extra clothing do you bring on something like this? Cause you know, like, I mean, I'll go bikepacking and I won't bring a single thing other than like a rain jacket or <laughs> something, you know? Um, oh, and I've been down to about zero Celsius with pretty, pretty, you know, stupid light, um, and, and really underpacked, but it's a ridiculous you know. number of layers that you yeah, end up okay. bringing. Cause I mean, really think about, you want to be able to move comfortably in temperatures down to, I don't know, minus 30 Fahrenheit yeah. and then be able to be comfortable like sitting at camp cooking dinner or melting snow or setting up camp in temperatures. So a puffy well jacket to throw that. on top if you stop is kind of clutch, puffy. Yeah, right? puffy jacket. I had two puffy jackets, like okay. two pretty, pretty thick ones and then uh, like down thick down pants mm-hmm. um, for, for pulling on at camp, down booties for sleeping in or wearing around camp and then for layers. Um, what did I have? It was usually like a thin long sleeve, a slightly thicker long sleeve, a, f- uh, a thin fleece um, zip up, kind of like a, it was a Patagonia. It's not a cycling jersey, but it's kind of like a, a winter cycling jersey. Okay. And then a Patagonia um, R2, what do they call it? The R2 Tech Face hoodie, which was my favorite favorite thing ever to wear. It's like a, a fleece jacket with it's a like, really nice yeah. hood on it and it's just a little bit of wind block. Uh, material on the outside of it and so that was one it's like anytime i'm getting a little chilled and i get to put that on i would just get smiley because of how comfortable and how like instantly put it on you're warmer so that was Mm -hmm. that was one that i really loved and then a synthetic um was it yeah synthetic kind of a thin puffy and so all those layers other than the down jackets are what i would wear riding if it was getting pretty chilly and then the puffy layers generally and you had a hard shell on top of that all or Let's see. I had a, I had a like a, a really thin soft shell, okay, almost like a wind jacket uh, that breathes a little better than a wind jacket. Mm-hmm. And that I wore fairly often if it was breezy. And then I did have an actual hard shell raincoat, okay. And we did get actual rain one day, which is like the this last thing you want when you're out right, winter camping yeah. or trying to Jesus. move through winter. Like Hugh and I were camped out, and like we were both sleeping with our tents next to each other with our doors open and wake up at 5 a.m. to rain falling on our tents. And I'm like, oh, shit. Do we My just wait this out? Waterproof. Like, oh, yeah, no. Well, yeah. So, like, most a lot of winter tents aren't waterproof because they're okay. not made to deal with rain. So yeah. I have a single wall tent. It's, like, water resistant. But if it gets too wet, it's just going to absorb that water. And mm-hmm. then as soon as it gets cold, your tent is going to be, like, frozen solid. That or you've, you've packed it up now and it's wrapped up into a ball. And, and all of a sudden it's never going to come yeah, apart. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. And so I was just, like, laying there thinking about all this. <laughs> like, uh, Hugh, I think we should probably maybe move soon. And it wasn't raining hard, right. but it was, like, a steady light rain. It's enough that it could be a problem if you wait hours, right? Like, yeah. yeah. So we ended up, like, right at first light got packed up and moved and that the snow conditions were terrible. It was one of the sections of, of the route that gets the least snow. And so it was like, I don't know, 15 centimeters or something of super soft snow on top of tundra. And you'd like break through to the tundra below. And so we covered six miles or no, we covered 10 miles in six hours that morning and we're just like drenched from, from being wet and And sweat. (laughs) Yeah, it was, yeah, so we got yeah. to a, an old cabin, and it's kind of used as a shelter cabin now. And so we got a fire going in there and tried to dry some stuff out. And then a bunch of ITI racers showed up, and were in. They were in a bad spot, like 
just exhausted and soaked and not taking good care of themselves. Mm. And so we got the fire going real big for those. And Nicholas cleaned out all the junk that was in the cabin and had made hot dogs for everyone that he had been carrying for a while. And then we all left and camped just down, down the trail after the rain ended. Okay. And then in the morning woke up to a trail that had frozen absolutely solid. It was like a concrete sidewalk. And it was the easiest riding you can imagine oh, in, in winter nice. conditions. Yeah, yeah, because so, of all the rain, right? Yeah, we had a terrible day the day before. And then the next three days we covered, I don't know, they were, they were like 50 to 60 mile days. Like we covered a lot of mileage and just flew. And then the next windstorm came in and suddenly things got pretty terrible again. I saw I saw a thing. I forget I forget what it was in a video. Uh, maybe it was Cycling to Gnome or something. Or there was a documentary, a small one. Yeah, there have been, been a few, yeah. Um. And it, the guy, uh, the person, I forget who it was, slipped my mind. Um, anyways, they said they never sleep inside the buildings. They're like, you know, it's smelly, it's busy, it's packed, it's noisy. And they're like, you're better off just sleeping outside and putting your stuff up. And, you know, you're already ready for that environment, right? Does that kind yeah, of sound Yeah, it's, it's totally to? true. Yeah, it's like it's it's <clears throat> comfortable to be in them if there's no one else there. But they're very much communal cabins. And the racers definitely rely on them there's a lot of racers mm-hmm. whose strategy is like race cabin to cabin and oh okay. that means they're showing up at the cabins like pretty spent not having taken good care of themselves for the last few hours potentially yeah. before getting there and then they like they need to get in they need to warm up they need to dry stuff off and then you get uh sled dog race folks like whether it's racers mushers that are staying in them or there's lots of like support crews volunteers going mm. back and forth on snow machines and sometimes they plan on staying in those cabins if they're not able to get from one checkpoint to the next and so they can definitely get busy people show <coughs> up at all different hours or start leaving at all different hours so it's it is a little bit weird in those mm. those little uh, shelter cabins and I, I was just thinking of another probably probably a good tactic and i don't know if you could confirm on this um is obviously you always want to keep your bike outside of things like that. Because I remember when I was in the Army way back when, yes. um, you never brought your rifle into the winter tent because mm-hmm. it would condensate. And then if you brought it outside, it would freeze, and then you'd have an inoperable rifle. Yes, exactly. So and probably the same with the bike, cables. right? You don't, want yep. your, you don't want anything to warm up, and it uh, yep. could lead to problems. So it's just a... Yep. And I yeah, guess you could say that for tactics and stuff, <laughs> but I just thought of it. <laughs> Yeah, that's no, that's a big one. There's a lot of people that end up having trouble with like tires um, coming unseated or leaking more when they bring their bike in and out or um, shifter cables or things like that. And it's probably tempting because you're like, all right, I need to fix this. Uh, I need to adjust my derailleur, but it's damn cold outside. So I'm just going to bring it in for 10 minutes and do it in there. Oh, and it's so much easier to like pack and unpack <sighs> right? things when you're inside and not having to go back and forth in and out and in and out. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's generally not the best idea to do yeah. that. Awesome. Good. Um, oh, a question about um, vapor barrier liners, socks, yeah. bags and stuff. Is this like a before continuing on with the show? I'd like to thank some of the show's sponsors for supporting the podcast. Redshift Sports was founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who also happen to be avid cyclists. From the beginning, they focused on taking a different approach to product development, drawing on their experiences and needs to create components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience. The highly popular shock stop suspension system smooths out road imperfections, reduces fatigue and strain. You can check them out at redshiftsports.com. Tailfin Cycling, designer of technical bike packing equipment, has been creating waves in the cycling community for several years, having stepped outside the conventional boundaries of bike packing equipment to find unique solutions that make the adventure all the better. Whether an endurance racer, bike tour, or bike packer, these bags offer solutions for everyone. From their unique rear rack with quick release mechanism to their ingenious locking mechanism on the panniers that provide a rattle-free bikepacking experience. 
Tailfin continues to push the envelope. I'm extremely pleased to be part of the R&D division of Tailfin to represent them on all my adventures and to have them supporting the podcast. Now back to the show. Such a, is it something that's just a necessary piece of kit? So I have incredibly sweaty feet, which is <clears throat> really frustrating. And it was on, honestly, when I was thinking about doing some of this winter racing a few years back and thinking about going and racing the ITI the first time, that was actually one of my biggest concerns is how am I going to deal with how much my feet sweat? Because it's so hard to make sure that you don't like your socks don't get wet. Your yeah. boots don't and, get and wet. And I read, and I probably, you're probably going to touch on this right now. I read that your feet will only get to a certain level of humidity. So if you have vapor liner barriers on or like a plastic bag, you're only going to get so wet. It's not going to become like a puddle. Like you're not going to have a lake. Oh, in your mine shoe. become a puddle. Oh, they do. Okay. So that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> mine definitely become a puddle inside. Like it's bad. Yeah. Uh, so you dump out the bag. It, the, <laughs> yes. You can literally like dump it out and sweat will <laughs> like, run out of it. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So the strategy I came up with the, the first time I was up there was, um, so I wear some, some super thin liner socks and then have plastic bags. And, you know, some people use like turkey baster bags or things like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I've heard I've of that. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've, I've found that. that those like, you know, even over the course of a single day, like my toe might bust through the tip sure. through those because yeah. they're not that strong. And so... I discovered on Amazon, you can buy like any size and thickness of Ziploc bag that you can imagine, like by, you know, centimeter or half inch increments and by like one mil thickness increments. Oh, okay. So So you get like, you're like, my foot's a size 20 and a half centimeters, like Japanese sizing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Measure your foot, figure how long it is, add a little bit, find the bag that is the right width for that. And then the right height to get it as tall as you want. And then I played around, I got a few different thicknesses and I think it was the, the four mil was the, the best thickness, like best oh, no balance between durability yeah, yeah. and not too inflexible that it was kind of uncomfortable inside. Right. And so I got those, they worked really well, but the seams on some of them would fail. And so then I got a little heat, uh, like heat sealer thing. And so you could just go through and, and reinforce the seams on everyone That's and <laughs> have these like bomb proof yeah, yeah. plastic liners. And these, I can use those for like a week straight and they won't leak. Whereas oh, you, know, you can get other vapor barrier socks, like commercially made ones. And it doesn't matter what the fabric is, like they all will seep through some, mm-hmm. um, some moisture if you have really sweaty feet. And part of it's, so you're just like, there's pressure on the fabric between your foot and the boot and your the, that pressure literally forces moisture through the right. laminate. Like it doesn't matter how waterproof it is. It's yeah, still yeah. going to force some through there unless it's like rubber or plastic or something. Oh, interesting. Um, so that system works. So really yeah, go well. like a centimeter or so bigger than your feet or two centimeters. So you can like seam seal the edges. And, yes, uh, exactly. <clears throat> and so, that's, so that's what I've been using. And then I discovered, um, so after the first trip, I was kind of fed up with still like it kept my socks dry and my boots dry, but my feet were still super wet the whole time. And like you could pull the liner socks off and mm-hmm. wring them out at the end of the day and they'd smell terrible after two days. And so I found this, um, I forget the brand of it. It's like antiperspirant cream that's designed for like hands or feet. Oh, yeah. And so if I put that on the beginning of a day, that cuts back on how much my feet sweat a lot. Yeah. And so that that's the system that I found that works really Interesting. well. Interesting, yeah. My, my brother, I remember growing up, like if you walked across a hardwood floor, it'd be like, you'd think it was like, a, it was like a picture <laughs> with Jesus or something. You know, you see the footprints in the sand, that yep. kind of thing. Yep. Like you're like, hey, Nicholas has been here. <laughs> yep. Um, Hugh had a different pair. <clears throat> some, some British companies... Uh, waterproof or they were designed as like a sock and vapor barrier in one so it was almost imagine like a a, a vapor barrier 
liner, but then with kind of fluffy stuff on the outside of it. Okay. And so he wore those the entire time and they worked really well for him. But by the end of the trip, oh my God, they smelled absolutely terrible. Like Like he was, he was sheepish in saying that he didn't know how, I think he was saying like, I don't know how it's possible for the human body that's not dead to smell this bad or create a smell this bad. Like they were And he probably felt guilty if you're in the building and he takes off his boots. He's like, I'm sorry, man. (laughs) Like you, you got to put those outside. (laughs) That's wild. Um, And the sleeping bag liner, I guess that is a... I've I've never used no? a sleeping bag liner. So okay. that was an issue. That was a really interesting one issue that I dealt with in the first week. So I slept outside every night for the first week. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't I didn't spend any time inside any buildings to dry anything out. And I used my tent maybe half the nights and just slept outside the other half um, when when it wasn't snowing or anything like that. And it was really impressive to see how much or to feel how much ice was building up inside my sleeping bag on the like the last three nights i didn't really notice it the first three but the last three like inside where the down is and all that stuff yeah 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 and so all that moisture whether it's you know from my sweaty feet you know drying Mm -hmm. out overnight or you know i try to not breathe into my sleeping bag but sometimes when it's really cold you do burrow in a little bit yeah um and then your body just gives off moisture um all the time and so all of that accumulates in the sleeping bag except the outer part of the sleeping bag is the temperature of whatever the outside world is and so if you're sleeping outside or in a tent that's cold, that moisture makes it partway through the sleeping bag and then freezes solid. And uh, so it doesn't actually make it outside the sleeping bag necessarily, or it freezes like on the inside of the out exterior fabric of the bag. And so if you were to use a vapor barrier inside the sleeping bag, that would trap all of that moisture. And everyone I've talked to that's done that said like, yeah, for a night or two, it's okay. And then you start to smell terrible. It's really uncomfortable. Mm. It smells terrible. <clears throat> Your clothes smell terrible. Your sleeping bag stays dry. So that's never sounded like a particularly appealing situation for me in a long trip. And so really what I learned in that is I can do like maybe five nights or six nights out in my sleeping bag. And then by that point, I need to be able to dry it out, whether it's in, you know, in a cabin with a wood stove or indoors or something like that. Like it needs to dry because it's each night has a little bit less loft. It's a little bit less warm than it was the night before. Yeah. I've been been testing out a uh, minus 20 quilt and the problem I came into, I slept in my bivy bag, which was probably a big mistake. Ooh, yes, that, uh, that definitely, that will trap a lot of moisture yeah. inside. <laughs> and and it was kind of, uh, it was snowing lightly, so I had it kind of more closed, and I had a down hood on, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like a s- separate piece of thing. But there was so much moisture in the morning, and, and I was, like, I camped near my house because I was testing it out, and I just wanted to make sure yeah. I, was, I was in a safe place. And, and I was hesitant about like, well, well, could I actually do a second night or a third night? You know, because like I felt like there was it was like a layer of ice. Yeah. And um, but then somebody I know messaged me and said, no, man, he's like those outdoor vitals quilts, like all the down is treated with DWR, whatever, how they do it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's he's like, you're good. He's like, I've had one soaked and I still slept at zero degrees temperature and I wasn't even cold. You know, hmm, that's impressive. So, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The thing that I want to try is um but the tent using, is key. <laughs> yes a tent will help um definitely will help but i want to try using a like a super thin synthetic uh bag over top of my down bag and what that'll do in see theory if it absorbs that, it yeah so that will be the thing that gets cold and so your entire down sleeping bag will be above freezing and so ah. that water vapor should continue to go all the way out and then it gets 
it doesn't hit the cold outside temperature until mm-hmm. it's in that thin synthetic cover. And then and it, it's the one that gets crusty and icy then, hopefully. Yes, and if that one's crusty and icy, fine. It's like it's synthetic. It still will have a little insulating quality. It'll dry out yeah. way faster when you do get it inside. Um, and it's just, you know, one extra relatively mm-hmm. small thing to carry. So yeah. I do, and do you know of a company that, that makes one bit. that would work for that? Or I mean, I have a, a Patagonia. It's a, it's literally a 60-degree um sleeping bag from them and it's designed to be like it's quite loose fitting um and so i think something like that would work mm. quite well it wouldn't you, you obviously don't want to yeah very compress very the loft and, yeah yeah mm-hmm. so that's what i would try um, interesting yeah i was thinking uh maybe that or just go to ground sheep and tarp you know like a mm-hmm. uh something real simple so you have lots of air movement but at the same time you keep the the weather off you i don't yeah um all right let's jump forward to the route i know we've uh, <laughs> we're like an yeah. hour in and we haven't even talked about the route uh <laughs> So you've done the ITI, the 350 and the 1000 by now, I guess, and mm-hmm. uh, when you put it all together. and um, Tell us about the route. I know there's a northern and southern, and how do they differ and whatnot? Um, yeah, so so the route, I mean, historically, the route started down east of Anchorage a little ways, and it was uh, developed in the early 1900s as a way to get supplies and people to the, the booming mine town of Nome. Okay. And... That was, you know, in the summer they could ship stuff there, but in the winter there was no way to get ships to town. And so they couldn't get mail there, they couldn't get supplies. And so the it was actually the U.S. Army commissioned a, um, a project to find an overland winter route to get there. And so that's the original, the origin of, of that Idrod Trail. Was, oh, that's was very that. cool. And it had originally, it was really cool, I was reading some of the history of it, um, one of the huts, that, or the, uh, not a hut, one of the shelter cabins that we stayed in had a couple... Uh, little history guides that had been written by the the society behind the trail today, the historical society. And they were talking about, had a chart of all the different roadhouses along the way. Like you could literally walk the trail in like 1910 from Anchorage to Nome and stay indoors every single night. Oh, wow. That's how many places there were to stay along the way. There were like a hundred of them. And today there's literally a handful left. Most of them closed after like a decade. Um, but at one point it was a very remote trail with a tremendous number of services along the way. And now it's a very remote trail. And they would trail have somebody where like, were they just empty home, like cabins or were they somebody no, living they, there that was, there was somebody there. Like you'd pay a little bit, they yeah, cook yeah. you food. It, it might be like canvas tents. Almost some of like a B&B. <laughs> like nice bu- yeah. Some of them were nice buildings yeah. that were constructed, uh, for that purpose. And so today it's a very different experience, obviously, that that those are pretty much all gone. And there's a few shelter cabins built by the BLM and a few shelter cabins uh, that are maintained by local local communities or like search and rescue groups out of some of the native villages. Uh, And then there are uh, some cabins and lodges early on along some of the the rivers in the first, I don't know, 100, 100 miles or so of it before you get to the Alaska Range. And then past that, there's just maybe, uh, I don't know. 14 native villages or something along the trail until you get to know them. And most of those have, you know, a little store, post office. Uh, a lot of them will have a school that's open for folks oh, to stay cool. in, whether it's people on the trail or, I mean, there's there's no lodging options in most of the towns. Yeah, so yeah, literally, yeah. If, if someone's coming to, like, you know, work on an HVAC system or something like that in a bu- on the school building, like, they're put up just in the gym in the school. And that is the place to stay. And so, obviously, like, it's good to check ahead because not all of them are open to the, the public for, for that sort of thing. But yeah. a lot of them will be and take a donation of, like, $70 a night um, for for the space and yeah. uh, for, for hopefully the, the little bit that they do offer. And then the the route splits. Like, it goes over the Alaska Range, you're in the interior, and then it splits. And there's a northern route and a southern route in the middle part of Alaska. 
and they're the sled dog race alternates one one year and then the other oh, okay the so year. the uh not the, the bike race doesn't as much right no it ha- yeah that the bike race the iti the the sled or the the human powered race has to follow whichever the sled dog race oh, okay does, gotcha, that's gotcha. going to be the best the best trail and the snowmobile race uses the northern route every year they never use oh, the southern route okay. um the so the the southern route is much more remote than the northern it's like i think it's probably the most like the middle of it was the most remote place i've ever been with a bike that says a lot because i kind of seek out those sorts of places and that was so far from from anything like any communities any people out there and it was absolutely gorgeous gorgeous country uh and then once you get to the yukon river then there's a a few more villages either route you're on and then you hop across an old, uh, very historic portage route to get to the uh, the edge of the Bering Sea. And out there, then there's a bunch of coastal villages along the way. And it's a completely different riding experience. Like you're right along the coast. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you're out on the sea ice. But that doesn't mean it's flat, right? Like you're just because you're on this, the coast doesn't mean you're like. No, there's flat, a lot right? of yeah. ups and downs. A lot of like, I mean, there were a lot of thousand foot climbs just up over these hills and then back yeah. down to the coast again. Pretty steep terrain there. And then once you get out on the sea ice, like it's flat, but you might be riding into a 25 mile an hour wind. Oh yeah, I see that between an entire Shack, day or, Tulik and Koyuk. It's like you're literally yes, crossing you're, a bay. Yeah, it's, what is that? Like 50K out near a ways away from shore. That's and so crazy. you have nowhere to hide. Like you're committed to just getting across there and it doesn't matter what the conditions are. So that's a, a pretty intimidating section if you if you hit it when the, the conditions are not nice. Yeah. Um. That's wild. <clears throat> I don't know. Um, do you know which, if one is harder than the other or is it? It depends so much just on conditions. Yeah. I think that that can make or break it. I think the Southern route probably is a little bit harder. Um, the train's just a little bit more demanding and it sees less traffic. So that right. usually means the trail's not in as good a condition. Because we know those snowmobilers. They don't like to take, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk about the checkpoints. I mean, um I, I'm guessing these are mandatory checkpoints and so, um, yeah, so the race, <clears throat> and the there's race a lot has, of them, so. so not really, it, no, it makes it like sound like there's a lot, but in, so in the, in the race, they have a few checkpoints in the 350, uh, a lot, well, let's see, one, two, three, probably four checkpoints seven. along I, the I way seven. that are, that are basically aid stations. Okay. And then the others are just like, I don't know, you pass something and there's nothing actually there. Oh, okay. Um, Maybe there's five. I forget. There's not very many in the in the the 300. And then once you pass that, the checkpoints basically are towns, and there's nothing oh. like the race doesn't provide anything for you once you're past McGrath doing the long one. So there's no actual um, volunteers or race staff or anything. Oh out wow! There. So it's like you you're really town. It's take care of yourself. Yeah, like you mail food to the post office or buy food in the store. I mean, nobody buys food in the store in the race, really. They just mail boxes to post offices. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much it. So then th- in the thousand, you're pretty much on your own after you, you p- finish the oh, first 300. Interesting. And then if you're touring the route, like we did, you obviously the, the checkpoints from the race are for racers only. So we didn't rely on any of them for anything or even go to most of them. Um, and they have supply drops too, right? So you can uh, send yourself, but the, like you said, the, yeah, most of them the, are in, in the, the 350, th- right? Yeah, in the 350, I think they have two two places where they'll fly um, drop bags in for you. And then they also have one in the 1,000 that they um, get the, the sled dog race folks to fly uh-huh. drop bags for, for the 1,000-mile the racers into one, one sled yeah, dog race. Yeah, mile 473 to be exact. I just searched Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I was looking at their website earlier. Yeah, yeah either, either Cripple, Cripple Creek or um, 
I did a rod depending on the year. And then other than that, you got to send stuff to the post offices, right? Yep. And so there are some racers that will send stuff to literally every post office and hope to get like every other box. And then there's others that are a little more discerning and be like, I'm just going to get that box there and make sure I'm there when the post office is open. Well, I guess like some of them are like, well, the amount I'm spending to do this race, like what's it matter at this point? Totally. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's, it's not a cheap. It's cheap not a. It's not a there, bad tactic if you're you're out to try to push it and race and be competitive, right? So. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think, what did I do? I mailed boxes to four four towns along the way, and was you know pretty trying to figure out my itinerary, try to figure out which post offices would actually be open because there's a lot that are closed, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and so kind of limited hours. And uh, loving the four day work week. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, Yes, yeah, so that worked out fine. We were able to get get all of them and plenty had plenty of food to eat. And then there's I mean, there's also stores in pretty much they're little stores, but there's stores in most of those villages. Mm-hmm. So you could buy a lot of food along the way. And it's, you know, not the most packable stuff or the lightest weight stuff necessarily. But if you don't get a box or miss a box, like there is a store there that you can buy food and you will be you'll be fine. And I think a lot of folks that are either racing or or touring on the route don't realize that that's actually a possibility. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you know, you, it's you not the forget. end of the world. You, you feel like you're your nowhere, but then, then yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the villages, I mean, people people live in those. Like, they yeah. do have basic services. And mailing yourself, I guess most, I'm assuming freeze-dried food is what most people are sending, right? Like, Yeah, it's just, it packs down mm-hmm. so much smaller. And in the winter, you know, it's an easy thing to, to cook. You just boil water and let it rehydrate. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And so, I i mean, my dinners were usually freeze-dried meals that I had added some butter and some mashed potatoes and some other calories, too, to get them up, up to, like, 1,000 calories a, okay. a meal. And yeah, you just pick calorie. up, like, you just bring some butter with that, right? Um, I, had, I had repackaged all the freeze-dried meals in advance because they pack down so much smaller if you uh, don't have them in their actual original packaging. Right. So I just had this, like, assembly line in my living room at one point when I was trying to get ready for this trip, and I'd, like had 25 days of food and so that's like 25 dinners and 25 breakfasts and filling all these ziploc bags up with with everything and measuring out to make Mm -hmm. sure okay these are all thousand calorie dinners and these are like 800 calorie breakfasts and trying to make sure that i had enough food for everything because it's you go through so many calories in in those temperatures yeah and um and lunches were just kind of on the go snacking as you go kind of thing yeah we were laughing that as the trip wore on like literally every single time we stopped during the day, which it might even be like we ride up a climb, stop at the top, ride down the descent, stop at the bottom to talk about how fun the descent was. And every single time we pull out like a snack and eat the snack. And it doesn't matter if you've been riding for 10 minutes in between or 30 minutes in between or 50 minutes in between. And like, you probably feel every, like you're starving at that point anyways. You're like, yeah, you can I'm keep freaking hungry. The whole, <laughs> yeah, it's you just you cannot get your body enough calories yeah. in, in those temperatures. And so I was, you know, I I'd packed or shipped ahead enough calories. But I still every time we got to a town and we could go into a store, yeah. I was like, I'm going to go buy a box of six donuts or, you know, like so many extra calories and they would all go down and I would never regret having gotten more. I wonder, I wonder what the, uh, the science is on that. Like how much your body is burning just to keep warm, you know, like if you're burning, let's say 500 calories an hour riding a bike or whatever, yeah, you're probably burning another thousand or 500 or whatever. Who knows? Uh, just yeah, I've never, keeping your body I've never dug in alive, to see what, know? what that difference is, but I'm sure that there, there are studies that have have tried to quantify that. That would be really interesting to see. Like if your basal metabolism mm. is 2000 calories a day normally, put yourself in 
cold temperatures and what is it just yeah. doing the same it would be interesting you know? to know like, uh, and, yeah. and maybe that research is out there i just haven't yep. I i'm just sure it is yeah. yeah um water hydration i mean it's such a tricky thing like i go for a two-hour ride and then i realize i forgot to drink at all you know like, and then i get a headache for <laughs> well, the rest of the day yeah. and i'm like ah why did i yeah, do that you know it's tough in winter yeah uh yeah i mean my secret no, well, it's not a secret. My method up there was I. I yeah, to, everybody um, send him five dollars and he'll share the secret right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is how to stay hydrated in the cold. No, I just had a, a, a two thermoses on my like a feed bags on my handlebars and a, a thermos in each, and they were yeah. each like I think eight hundred milliliter thermoses, and that's usually that was enough to get most of the way through the di- through the day on, and sometimes I would stop like and proper boil, thermos boil that has like a cap, you know, like a yep, like a yep. thread on lid. Yep, and then I just always had something in the water, whether it was like a, a little goo fizzy. Um, electrolyte tab or whatever. Or, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Or um, what did I find? Found in one of the stores up there are these little uh, apple cider powder packets that were pretty tasty. Hot chocolate, or okay. hot chocolate and coffee powder, um, like instant coffee. Yeah. Oh, was was always delicious. So I just like always had something like that in there, so that it was warm and I really wanted to drink it. Or if it happened to cool off by like late afternoon, it still tasted good, and yeah. so I still would want to drink it. Um, I remember when I used to go on like these winter exercises in the military, this is, you know, 20 years ago or something. Um, we'd have our rations out and, you know, some people would have this like French vanilla, whatever. And some would have hot chocolate <laughs> and some would have coffee and we'd just take a pot and everybody would dump everything into one pot yes. and then we'd oh, all share the, it. And the, um, Ranger coffee or whatever you called it. I don't remember what it was called, but, uh, the, oh, there was an the apple that. cider mix mixed with hot chocolate powder. That was really good. I discovered so probably uh, if you had it now, definitely. you'd be like, this is disgusting. But at that time, <laughs> at that moment, that probably is true. I think that probably is true. <laughs> You'll be at like, kids, moment, it you was have delicious. to try this. This is so good. <laughs> and <they're> like, <laughs> um, what were some of the, you know, cause I mean, it starts off it. I mean, I'm looking at the map here and it looks like, yeah, you know, it looks like the vast majority of the route is flat. No, and there's just a bit of mountains, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty much flat. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it is a, a remarkably flat route. I mean, even the climb into the mountains, you don't even feel like you're going up for most of it. There's like okay. little short, steep things that are, you know, maybe 50 feet tall or something like that. And so those actually like those little rollers on a, a loaded fat bike in the snow, those actually do take yeah. a lot out of you. So there's a lot of sections that feel gently hilly, but f- the like physical toll that takes on you is much higher than you would expect. Um, and then in the middle part, it's yeah a lot of rolling terrain, nothing too steep. Um, the Alaska range, when you hop over that, it's a, the climb up rainy pass is a pretty steep one, mm. but it's only, I think you only gain like maybe 1600 feet or 1800 feet. So what is that? Like 600 meters maybe or something less. like yeah, that yeah. is like the, the, the steep part of the climb. Meters. It's it's really not that much. Uh, and then the Yukon river is like flat and this, the coast we talked about already that there's a bunch of you know 600 to yeah so from feet from ruby to caltag you're just on the river right basically yep yep that's cool yeah yep very and then flat i guess riding, if it's the it south gets... loop then you're going up the river as opposed to yeah and it doesn't matter which way you go you pretty much have a headwind the whole time probably so yeah, that no is an added challenge and makes it hard to stay warm mm. wild um so i guess like the difficulties it, I mean, it's just the unpredictability, right? Like you can't say that like one year, this section could be super easy. And the totally. next year you're like, this absolutely sucks. And yep. like, I think I saw one of your posts, you said you were pushing for hours. Like, oh yeah, there was one miles and miles. Of- there was once the stretch, um, 
Oh, it was super frustrating because one there's a storm that came through. Like I, I hopped over the Alaska Range. I was had been racing a storm that the forecasts were calling. For me, this was the the year of being on long trips and seeing like forecasts that are talking about how exceptionally an event is going to be or near record this or near record right. that. It seemed like everywhere I was, that was what I was encountering. And so this was a, a storm that they were talking about being like surprisingly strong considering what the, the setup for it was. And so I raced to get over the Alaska range ahead of the storm, beat it. And then the next day I woke up and was in kind of a sheltered valley. I was like, oh, it's not bad. It hasn't snowed that much. And they were predicting like a foot of snow and winds gusting to 60. And so I was expecting to just have to stay put for a day. Okay. And so I was like, ah, it's not bad. Like it it snowed maybe an inch and it's breezy, but that's it. So I packed up and left, had a fun encounter with a wolf just down the trail, which was really cool. Oh, yeah. And then got out into where I could see down the river and it was just like huge clouds of snow being Big blown drifts, down the river right? in the gusts. Yeah. yeah it, and so that section of trail is kind of remarkable that it's more or less straight northwest for like 70 miles. It's almost just due northwest that whole time. And the winds were coming out of the southeast, gusting to 50 miles an hour, which if they had been going any other way, I would have just hidden for the whole day. But right. this was a tailwind. And so the trail was like on and off rideable across frozen lakes. I was doing like 18 miles an hour, which on a fast bike is crazy. Yeah. So that day was great. Like, you know, I had a fair bit of hiking along the way, but when you were riding, you were going pretty fast. Mm. And then the next day slowed down. Um, tr- conditions were pretty, pretty tedious, but off and on rideable. And then toward the end of the day, they got a lot better. There'd have been some like two snowmobiles that went through where I turned onto a different section of trail. And that was actually really manageable. And so I rode for a while into the dark. I was like, OK, well, it's good now. I'm going to go to sleep and get up in the morning and it's only going to be 50 miles to get to um get to mcgrath and then i was going to take a few days off there and woke up in the morning and everything seemed fine i'd camped in like the the lee of a little um grove of trees in a swamp and so was you know everything looked great got out on the trail rode like i don't know four minutes and then suddenly realized that the wind had been blowing all night and drifted the trail shut except where i had camped and right in front of it and the entire trail that day was like five or six inches of really soft, almost unrideable or completely Yeah, and I saw your snow. pictures, and it's like every step you can see is just like, it's like yeah. walking through slush almost. Like That's what it feels like, yeah, even though it's, it's dry snow, but yeah. it has no cohesion, and so it's just super slippery. And so that day, I think I walked, man probably 30 miles something like that and then fortunately the last 15 miles turned into being rideable and like actually in pretty good condition so at the very end of the day i was like i actually am gonna get to mcgrath tonight and that was great because i only had like i don't know maybe a thousand or 1200 calories left and so i would have eaten up all the last of my food um on that if i had to stay out one one extra night but i wonder how how hard like Something like this when you, well, I mean, it's obviously hard, but, um, my, my thoughts are coming together slowly here. Uh, <laughs> you know, men, the mental game, you know, mm-hmm. you, I, I love biking. I love getting up every day and riding my bike, but I think like, I feel like, man, when you get up and it's so cold outside and you got to put your stuff on and then you're like, Oh, I gotta ride my bike. And this, and look at this, this, the snow, it's six inches and this sucks. And like, yeah. how does the mind, how, how do you pull it? together you know oh that that's such a good question and like I, I went through that up on that trail this summer i spent three months riding the continental divide trail which is like three months on some of the hardest single track yeah. you can imagine and 
it so I had four months of that this year that was you know so many hard days after hard days after hard days or like the hardest day I've had on a bike physically followed by the next hardest day I've ever had on a bike (laughs) and then again the next day and and I think the theme that that was maybe the only thing is to keep thinking like today can't be as hard as yesterday (laughs) no because it can be and it will be if you think that um no the, the really resounding thing to come out of all that for me was reminding myself that like I chose to be there like mm. I chose that trip I chose that route yeah I chose that challenge and for both of those like I knew exactly what I was getting and into. you're I'm, in this lovable position where you can choose to do these hard things you know like yeah not- you can't necessarily choose to stop <clears throat> them immediately like you're kind of stuck out there and so there is there is the reality that you, you know you if it gets too miserable or you decide you really don't want to be doing it yeah bail like it's not worth putting yourself through it but you're not always at a point where you can in that moment when mm-hmm. you're having those thoughts. And I really wanted to, to finish both those long trails. Like that was a big goal for yeah. me for the year. Um, and so just having that little conversation in my head with myself is like, hey, you chose this. Like you knew that this was going to be potentially this bad or this mm-hmm. hard or that your fingers were going to be this cold so much of the time or, you know, all those hard things that that come with it. Um and so reminding yourself of that. And also for me, like I have done so much of this so many times that I know that it's right now it's really challenging or I don't want to say miserable because I don't, I don't like to let myself get into that kind of headspace, but it is that challenging in the moment and maybe that unfun in the moment, but give yourself a few hours and it might be a complete absolute 180 and you know, the most beautiful view you've seen in weeks or just having a great time out there. Or sometimes just the fact that it did turn 180 is a high enough. And then you get to ride that 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 last 15 miles into McGrath. Totally. And I had so, yeah. And I had so much fun doing that. It was such a great way Mm -hmm. to end the day. And, um, yeah, so it, it definitely, it takes some extra tools in your mental toolbox to be able to work through those things. And I think the more experienced you are and the, more aligned your expectations are with what the likely reality or the possibility possible reality is the easier it's going to be mm-hmm. for you to make those arguments internally be like hey you knew what it was going to be you knew what you were getting into you you knew what you wanted to get out of this experience and that this was going to be part of it yeah so all of that you know kind of reasoning with yourself and um so that's that's one that also if you're getting back to that idea that i was mentioning earlier of you know being as fit as you can possibly be for these sorts of things if you can get that, take that piece out of the equation that like mm. take the physical struggle out of it as much as you can, then it makes it so much easier to do with the mental side of it. That that's, you know, that you have a little yeah. bit more energy to, to focus on if you're not struggling with, with just physically being. Yeah. I think I read somewhere or listened to, I don't remember if it was heard it or read it. Uh, and they said, you know, anytime you're in a situation where you're like, I absolutely I'm done with this and I want to quit I want to give up they said just go to sleep wake up the next day and reevaluate because a good sleep so might just be all you need to say like I'm ready to power on again you know that's totally true and with with the folks that I coach doing doing longer races what I always tell them is sit down give yourself a five minute break eat a big snack and drink a bunch <laughs> usually that helps and, you know, maybe maybe the sleep would be the next next best thing after that. Yeah. If you can can also That's do true. that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. but those I mean, for so many of us, like it's in especially in challenging situations, we fall behind on the basic essentials of, you know, just feeding our body, nourishing ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's that's where our fuel and where our energy comes from. You already mentioned how easy it is to just keep moving and moving and moving without actually drinking anything. All of those things affect yeah. both our bodies like muscles and our minds and so those are two things or three things if you count the sitting down just 
stop moving for a minute and mm-hmm. let yourself relax. And maybe eat some real food if you have some. Because I think quite often, like I find when I'm on bikepacking adventures, I end up eating a bunch of junk and then I feel like shit. Yep. And, and then I start deal. to get like acid reflux and all these things. And it's like, man, if I would just like drink some water and eat some real food, you know? Yep. Yeah, this this summer when I was on the Continental Divide Trail on one of the hardest sections, my energy was just so low. Like it had been so hard for so many days. And I fortunately had overestimated how long it would take to get through that section. So I had a few extra dinners along and Mm. I started eating those for lunch instead of just snacks for lunch. And the last three days I was on that section, that made such a huge difference for like the next four hours after I'd stop and cook up some food. It was, yeah, it was remarkable. Mm. Yeah, probably that that one hour break or whatever it takes you to cook mm-hmm. and eat saves you. Yeah, you probably yeah. don't lose that hour because you're energized. No, and you I was moving so good. much. Yeah, I was moving so yeah. much faster <clears throat> afterward, and I was getting a thousand calories in or eight hundred calories in instead of like four hundred. Yeah, it's the same so. as balancing the sleep thing, right? Like some people, you know, you look at like uh, Sofian Zahili and how for a long time he was just going no sleep, no sleep, no yeah. sleep. But then he started sleeping on some races, and he's like, oh, actually, I have more energy, like Lachlan, yeah. right? And, like and he goes sleeps, just as fast. Sleeps like yeah. six hours and just crushes everything, right? So, <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, so super interesting. Um, logistically, um, I guess you just have to, I mean, I, I'm assuming the race is fairly expensive. I'm not, I didn't check the pricing. Um, you know, what? how do people budget for something like this? Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm going to assume yeah. they already have the bike. And they already have a fair amount of specialty gear because to, to do the Iditarod, you have to qualify and you have to have done some stuff. Yes, exactly. In theory, you should have gradually been acquiring a lot of that gear in order to to do some big things in advance. And like, even if you're not doing the race and just want to go up and ride some of the trail, like it's not something you want to just jump into without mm-hmm. a bunch of prior experience um, either, either way. And so... You know, the gear side, hopefully, you know, if we take that out of the equation. Minus maybe about, the minus 45 sleeping bag, which is like an upgrade. And, yeah, and, potentially. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what what my expenses were. I mean, I think the food alone for me on this was, I think it was close to $1,500. I was going to say, it must be one of the bigger weeks. expenses, right? Like, cause Yeah, that was a lot. Um, the travel is a fair bit to get up there, and then it's a couple, well, one flight to get back mm-hmm. from from Nome at the end. So that right. that adds in, and then if you're if you are staying inside in places along the way or buying food along the trail, like stuff is just expensive up yeah. there on the on the interior. That's just the nature of of any. Well, yeah, because it costs a villages. fortune to get the stuff there, right? So totally, yeah. yep, yep. So all that adds up, and so I'm I'm trying to remember. I think my total expenses for the trip this year which included some of the stuff that i needed to buy that i didn't already have or like that i wanted to change for this year um clothing wise or or that sort of thing i think i was somewhere around five thousand dollars or so um us when all was said and done which like that's that's a lot for a you know one month experience yeah but and and, like the mind-blowing part is when i look at the list of finishers the number of dnfs Yes. I mean, because there's there's a million reasons why somebody could DNF. And, you know, so I think, like you said, being physically prepared, mm-hmm. you know, at least you take that out of the equation. I mean, unless you injure yourself, you know, yep. Um, yep. you know, because I think some people probably go there and they're not physically ready. They've done some events, but maybe they're not, you know, and all of a sudden they're like, this is way harder than I expected. And yeah, to have that as a reason you quit and have blown a ton of money would just be awful, you know? Like, yeah, no, totally. And <clears throat> this last year, um, in in the, the race itself, so they started, 
what, I guess I started a day and a half ahead of them. And the first night they were out on the, the Swetna River, they had temperatures down around minus 35, which for a lot of folks was the coldest they had ever been in, apparently. Sure. And there were a lot of people that got knocked out of the race that first night just because of not being like they were either in, in like race mindset and not paying attention to their bodies and the fact mm-hmm. that, hey, I'm actually getting frostbite on my hands or on my face. Yeah. Um, or they were realizing that they actually weren't prepared for temperatures like that and that they couldn't actually stop and bivy because they hadn't set themselves up with their systems or their experience in order to actually be able to stop and manage themselves in temperatures like that. So there was mm. there's a lot of the field that ended up dropping out that first night. And that would be awful. Uh, which was, You're not even yeah. one day into like a almost a month long event, you know? Something that's going to yeah. take weeks, you know? Totally. But at the same time, it's really good when people can recognize that and you know the ones True. that actually yeah. did say hey i'm this is scary <clears throat> i'm actually not prepared for this i'm going to stop now because it's i'm not too remote yet but if i keep going the consequences could be way way that's, higher that's a good point and yeah. at that point they're putting both themselves at risk and whoever's going to have to come rescue them at yeah, risk that's good so point. that's the yeah. kind of thing you really want to avoid so yeah hats off to people that do can make that, that hard make decision. the hard choices yeah. I, yeah I think i remember watching that documentary and it was like the guy was taking off his hat and a piece of his ear came off and i was like oh and i was watching i was like that's kind of funny but in reality it's like oh man that is absolutely brutal like yes you know at some point you're gonna have to, at some point that's gonna thaw and it's gonna suck a lot you know like yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we had in one of the the villages, I guess it was Shaktulik, when we were getting ready to head out onto the sea ice, um, we were just outside the store Mm -hmm. for a little while, and we had gathered a bunch of um, driftwood that we'd strapped to, like, every place we could on our bike, because there's one little shelter cabin out, um, like, before the biggest expanse of sea ice that has a little tiny stove in it, but there's no wood anywhere nearby to burn. Mm. And so we packed a whole bunch of wood to take out there so that we could actually stay there that night and warm ourselves up. But so we were just standing outside the store, and uh, a fellow rolls up on his quad, and he has like this, this beautiful beaver skin hat on, and he's like, "So, where are you heading tonight?" <laughs> and we're like, "Oh, out to, out to the little cabin on the point." He's like, "Okay, cool. Got some wood. Good. You guys good?" I'm like, yeah. You sure you're good? Yeah. You know it's you know it's gonna be windy. I'm like, we're good. It's like, okay. We had to rescue people last year. Oh, and wow. a couple years before that, um, and he he mentioned the the, the examples of of the, the scenarios, um, but he was just like making sure that we knew what we were doing and that we were mm-hmm. very comfortable going out into what the forecast was going to be. Right. And it, you know, it was it wasn't a particularly bad forecast. It was like lows of minus twenty and twenty five mile an hour winds, and yeah. so. But know, he's probably not, seen so much that he's oh, like, yeah, and and uh, what, more and of the, these stupid southerners. <laughs> yeah, and the one of the big challenges that is they see people in race mode that are like very focused on forward progress at all costs, sleep deprived, and not thinking yeah. straight. Yeah, yeah, and so that is definitely something that um, that is a, a concern in the the villages out there is the people that are in that yeah. mode. And so I have were, a I have one of those I have a black bear one uh, from Russia. I lived there for a while back yeah. in the day. So warm, so warm. Like, <laughs> man, that hat you put that on, nothing's and bothering. And they're so stylish. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and you look like you're from the sticks, you know. So fit in perfectly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess yeah, it's, it's all good points. Um, I forget what I was asking, so I forgot where we were. <laughs> um, but yeah, logistically wise, um, you said probably cost you about five grand. Um, you know how many? 
how many days ahead do you arrive up there? Like, what's the, uh, what's, yeah. you know, do you want to? I mean, all, all do, that is so, so personal. I think the biggest yeah. thing time-wise is making sure that you ship your food boxes with plenty of time mm. for the um, postal service to get them to the post offices because they're going to be kind of lower priority shipping to um, those those villages and post offices mm-hmm. if weather is bad or if can, if stuff gets bad, like, supplies that need to get to those villages take precedent over just regular mail. Right. And so it might take two plus weeks for stuff to get out to, oh, to those okay. post offices. And so that's just something to keep in mind. Um, I mean, I just, I got up to Alaska just a few days before, I think three days before maybe I was leaving to start the ride this last time. And that was definitely a little stressful. There were some things I needed mm-hmm. to deal with in town and it always, there's so much last minute stuff that pops up. Um, and if you do have some flexibility in getting there and having a little bit of time to pick the better weather window in case you know, like, there's nothing worse than starting the trip off in like really challenging trail conditions. It just is not this at all encouraging. Yeah. Uh, Especially it, if you're it, not racing and you're going to tour it, right? Like yeah. it, gives, it gives you a little bit of leeway. Totally. Yeah. And so definitely like pick the good conditions and, you know, weather forecasts are, are semi-reliable up there, especially the, the parts um, closer to the coast. Like there's good, good forecasting and it's pretty straightforward for, for a lot of that. So, um, if you have that kind of flexibility, fantastic. And, you know, definitely I would say if, if you're going to go up there and tour part of the trail, like, you know, start from the the end closest to Anchorage and just ride that first bit up to the Alaska range. And there's there's places that you can fly in and out of mm. up there uh, potentially. And there's lodges along the way. And so it's not particularly remote. So it's a great first place or go out along the coast and it's a little bit more remote out there, but there are native villages spaced out. And so if if, you know, you do want to plan a shorter shorter trip that doesn't do a huge chunk that part of it um has that that air air airport infrastructure mm-hmm. flight infrastructure um that that you can work with and so does anybody ride it counterclock i like reverse um it's rare for anyone to do long <clears throat> trips on it but we did run into a few folks that were riding from gnome to Nalaklete last last time we were up there and uh the first trip that Nicholas Carmen did, I think, was doing something similar, starting mm-hmm. in Nome and and riding back a little ways along the coast. And so that definitely is a section that that people do ride in both directions. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it seems pretty epic. Um, are there a lot of people that tour up there as opposed to just the racers, or is it, not uh, a ton? It's, I mean, there's. I mean, one of the reasons I've put so much time into creating mm-hmm. that that guide for the trail is that there's literally no information about the trail on the internet like the Mm -hmm. blm has a bit on their website because it's they administer the trail it's a a national historic trail so it's a public public Mm, route um and they're the the blm is the one that what does blm stand for by the way oh uh, blm so it's the bureau of land management in the u.s we have the forest service and then the bureau of land management which are our two big public lands managers um and in alaska a lot of the land is either national forest in the forested areas blm managed or managed by by native corporations okay. or communities. Um, so those are kind of the three three big um, agencies or organizations that that run run and manage lands up there. And so the BLM oversees the trail and oversees and puts in a lot of the shelter cabins on the well, maybe half, a little over half the shelter cabins. Oh, okay. And so those are you know they're open to the public who are traveling by any means on the trail. But it's really hard for folks to get excited about traveling on a trail that they don't know anything about. And so the race is kind of a, a default go-to because they provide some logistical support mm-hmm. and a little bit of a safety net for racers. And it's like a very known known way of doing and experiencing the trail. Um, but there's a lot of folks that have no no desire to actually race 
on something like that or race through through those conditions. And so touring right. is a great way, great way to do it. And so I saw I mentioned those those groups of snowmobilers that we saw that were touring the trail um, when we were up there. And I saw one one skier that was skiing from um, McGrath back to Anchorage, going the opposite direction from me when I was up there. To cross country ski something like that, man, that is like next level. Oh. Like. <laughs> she, yeah, she was so impressive and like she's done big stuff like this wasn't anything huge for her, but she started with 10 days of food in her pack to do. She's basically doing the whole thing self-supported wow. and I saw her and she was, I think, three days in and I was shocked at how quickly she was moving over these snowmobile whoops that were just terrible. Like they were horrible to ride on. I don't know how she yeah. wasn't breaking her skis and all of it, but she was just moving so steadily through it all, like looking like it was nothing with a pack that had 10 or two cross country skis as well? of food. I did yeah. years ago. Okay. I, I find like it's, um, you know, it's one of those things that's amazing. Like I, I'm relatively young. I'm 43. Um, you know, I, I'm in pretty good shape, but then sometimes I see somebody on the trail who's like 80 years old. And they're just so gracefully blowing by me. Oh my gosh. With such beautiful technique. And you're like, how does that person <laughs> do this so well? You know, as, as you're yep. there sweating and panting and puffing and you're like, they're I'm efficient. not in bad shape. They, it's just, yep. they have such good technique. So I'm assuming yep. somebody like her who's yep. skis oh, it a was, lot, like their technique it was so is, clear. yeah. And she had the ideal technique for horrible trails like horrible trail conditions, ungroomed, you know, that yeah. it's a very different, different style. It's called and smile and keep going. <laughs> <laughs> she had it down. So yeah, so there's definitely some people that you see out there on the trail. There's not a lot. Um, and yeah, I definitely would encourage cool. folks. Like if, if you do want to have that kind of winter experience the trails there, it's the, the transportation infrastructure's there and the, the trails, you know, for those few weeks, odds are it'll be decent. Conditions mm-hmm. could be terrible can go either way. Um, but yeah, folks are cool. folks in the villages along the way are excited to see see people out mm-hmm. there and um, stop and chat, like have communication with them. And we had a few. We stayed in a couple of the schools along the way, and the the principals were like, "Hey, do you want to stay and talk to some of the students in the morning?" Oh, I saw like, you did. Pre- yeah, yeah, I saw sure, you were here. Yeah. that'd be great. And it was it was kind of amazing that they've like all the different people that do the race and have been doing that for years, staying in the schools. And it sounds like they're always. I mean, it's understandable. Like they're they wake up and they leave mm-hmm. immediately, and so no one ever gets to talk to them or hear what they're doing or yeah, anything until like you that. meet somebody and who's so, touring and is not necessarily yeah, in a big rush. No, no sense of urgency and mm-hmm. we don't need to get going and hey let's let's chat with folks and yeah, actually yeah, learn so cool. more about what they're doing here and what life is like here and share yeah. a little bit what we're doing with them and so that was super fun to be able to do very cool what about wildlife i know a uh, wildlife i know you mentioned the wolf um what else did you see yeah moose moose are scary yeah they're dangerous. There's a lot of moose some years there can be I mean, deep big snow years the moose prefer to be on the trail because they can actually move mm-hmm. relatively easily on the trail compared to in, in deep snow and yeah. so the moose encounters are not rare and they can be kind of dangerous yeah you just gotta give them space and kind of yeah and but sometimes they won't move like they'll just they stay where they are in the trail and they just won't move and you have to figure out how to get around them um what else do we see? Not a lot. It's it's pretty. Are quiet. there polar bears up there? I presume they're nope. No, nope. they're up on the the northern coast. Okay. Well, I guess there was. Um, never say never. <laughs> no, there was one seen on the sea ice just outside of Nome. Okay. A few weeks before we were there, and there was a woman and her son killed. Oh, man. In one of the villages just a little north of Nome earlier in the winter, which was like an absolute shocking thing, because um, they're the polar bears aren't normally 
one, wandering quite that far south, and mm-hmm. two, active at that time of year. They're usually hibernating. Um, and that's probably so. more of an area where I'm, I'm maybe, that's hard, I don't know, I haven't looked at the map exactly on the grand scale to see how far north it is, but maybe grizzly bears in the summer and stuff are more of a concern. On some know. of the trail, definitely. Yeah, I don't know how far west toward the um, toward Probably the up gnome, to the mountains. The direction. They want to be in the mountains. Def- anyways, yeah, definitely yeah. to the mountains, yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I know I've heard of some uh, pretty crazy grizzly attacks and stuff up in like Whitehorse and stuff when I cycled up there yep. and I was staying with family and it was pretty, yep. you're like, damn. It's, like, it's real. <clears throat> you yeah. have to be so careful. Like, Yep. Uh, oh, what about the wolf? Some, like, some, was there any kind some, of? Oh, some some bison also. Oh, bison are neat. Yeah. Yeah, on the on the north side of the Alaska Range, there's some bison herds. Cool. And they're, it's wild to see them up there. Like, I think of them as like Great Plains species here in the the central yeah, US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but you can totally ride past them. It's just you gotta. Yeah. Yep. Try not to make too much eye contact and disturb <laughs> them or something. Right? Like, uh, yeah, so the, that the wolf, wolf encounter was, was he was he pretty that cool. That was that was a super cool one because I was. I just left uh, where I'd camped and was cruising down the trail. And then all of a sudden I noticed there's wolf tracks in front of me, but they're going the opposite direction. And mm. so I'm like going the opposite way that the wolf had been going. And I hadn't seen those tracks just a little ways back. And so I stop and I turn around and there's the wolf maybe like 30 meters behind me facing me looking back at me. And so I must have like spooked it off the trail and it just stepped uh, off into the woods yeah, yeah. and then came right back onto the trail and was just staring me down from behind. So we just, stood there and looked at each other for a little bit and then it turned and loped off down the trail back toward where i'd camped so that was that was yeah cool. i don't was i don't know what the tactic is with the uh, with wolves i know like you know they say the bears you do this you do that don't climb, <laughs> don't climb trees uh wolf you're probably good if you climb a tree um <laughs> yeah i mean lone lone wolf i wasn't I, honestly it didn't even cross my mind no, that i should be concerned yeah. about it that you know i probably maybe should have just kept mm-hmm. moving but I was more enamored by but the even, fact even that I was here, staring like, at a wolf. Yeah, when we're camping out here in this region, sometimes you hear wolves howling at night, and you hear coyotes for sure. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's just, I they don't worry to me too much. Moose, moose more. Bears, not at well, all. Moose are terrifying. Black bears, not yep. at all. Anyway, so yeah, awesome. Well, I mean, I don't have any more questions. I, I, I think I came up with everything I could possibly come up with. Um, awesome. Anything else you wanted to share that I kind of missed on? Oh man, I just encourage people to try try winter winter camping, winter bike packing. Like and it's super fun. It's way more enjoyable than I ever thought mm. that it would be. It was something that it was quite unfamiliar to me just a few years ago, and I'm so glad that that I spent some time. Yeah, and if you want to uh, go take it on, go to Ultra MTB and check check out the uh, the guy. Yes, I'll I'll send you. Do you have links in the that you can put in the show show notes? Uh, yeah. If you uh, send me a link, I can add it. Cool. Yep, I can send you a couple links to the. Don't send the it to this. I'll send it to email. Yeah. Okay, perfect. And then, uh, yeah, folks can can learn more about the trail. Sweet. At that, and the ITI race is just like a couple weeks, weeks away, away. Think, so yeah. you can follow that on Track Leaders and cheer everyone's little dots on as they cruise at either slow speed or very slow speed, depending on on conditions. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, you don't have to hang up, but like, uh, let's just call it a day. And uh, thank you for being on the show and yeah. uh, popping by and uh, actually getting to meet you. Um, I was a little bit starstruck to start, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here. Um, great to meet you as well. Cheers, man. Um, so yeah, that's it. Awesome. Sounds man. Good. It was super fun. Um, yeah. Thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate it. Yeah. Cheers, dude. All right. Bye. Good night. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. 
you have any comments or questions, you can email me at chris at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. Head over to bikepackadventures.ca slash partners for some amazing deals. If you're enjoying the show and would like to become a supporting member, head over to www.patreon.com slash bikepackadventures to sign up. Patreons get to enjoy early access and ad-free podcast episodes. You can also support the show by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, helping me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and continue to produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.